Father, I pray that you will um, open our hearts and our minds to hear what you want to say to us this evening through your word. And would you give us grace to respond and to put into practice what you show us to do. Amen. Amen. So Jesus, um, I'm just just going to jump straight in tonight, if that's okay. I'll dispense with the pre-sermon joke, you know, and the kind of thing you just get, it's going to dive into this. Jesus ascends to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, where it says that he lives always to make intercession for us. Jesus is praying at the right hand of the Father for us. Why does he do that? Because Jesus completes the knowledge of God. Um, God, the Trinity, knows all things, knows everything, but as a Trinity only. You see, the the Scripture says God the Father has never been tempted nor can he be tempted. He doesn't know what it's like to be tempted. God the Father has never been taken by surprise because he knows the beginning to the end. But Jesus likes to be tempted and he knows what it's like to be taken by surprise when people let him down. And, and so he sits at the right hand of God and together they know all things, even what it is to be human, what it is to be you and I, to be frail, to fail. And he intercedes for us. And what's he interceding for? What's he praying? Well, we can get a clue, I guess, from the kinds of things Jesus prayed when he was on earth. This is the longest prayer we ever have recorded of Jesus. And it's from John 17, and it says this. I pray, says Jesus. He's interceding to the Father. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. He's praying for us. Thousands of years ago, he was praying for you and me. That all of them may be, they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus is praying that for us tonight. Get the hand, right hand of the Father. That we might be one, that we might come to unity. That's his prayer. The scriptures say that in, in Christ all things hold together. There's a kind of a unity in all they all find their place in Christ. Outside of Christ, everything disintegrates. It falls apart. That's why hell is described, isn't it, as a fire. Because a fire just disintegrates everything. It turns everything back to its raw elements, which is really just carbon. All just goes, but it disintegrates. But in Christ, everything holds together. It finds its meaning, its purpose, and it comes to a unity. God himself is a unity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and there is no division between them. There's nothing, there's nothing that you can put between them. One doesn't ever play off the other, um, you know, against the other. Um, God is a, a, a unity. 
And so everything he creates has that same sort of unity to it. God doesn't create rubbish. Everything he creates is good. And he creates it to demonstrate something of his own nature and his own nature. And nothing God does is, is contrary. He doesn't set one up and then against something else. It works together. All this, of course, was foretold in um, Psalm 133. Um, the psalmist, probably not thinking at this point about the doctrine of the ascension, probably not thinking about the knowledge of God being made complete, not aware yet of the prayer of Jesus for unity. But this, um, this psalm that is part of this collection of 150 psalms that was collected and pro proven by the, the community of, of faith. I mean, they probably had thousands, I don't know. I mean, how many songs, grandmother, now out there today? In the, I mean, how many songs and hymns could we, how many? It must be thousands and thousands. And maybe they had thousands too. Didn't John Wesley write something like 7,000 or something hymns? And I don't know how many, whether it was that or... Yeah. 6,000? person. I, I wonder if they had loads of them, but what they did was, as they're thinking about which, which of these psalms spoke most deeply to the community, which articulated what they were feeling and experiencing most deeply. And over the years and the centuries, they, they came to, to, if you like, whittle it down. These psalms were the ones that they came back to again and again. These were the ones that they realized at key times in their lives, individually and also as a, as a community of people. It spoke into the situations they were facing. There are psalms of thanksgiving. There are psalms of longing. For, the, for, for God to put the world right. There are psalms of praise. There are psalms of thanksgiving. There are psalms of desperation. And you turn the pages and each psalm is speaking into an experience and often reflects a prayer that's been born out of the life of the community, proven over centuries to be the, 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 the kind of the things that we want to need to say to God. And then you flick through them and then you get to this one. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. And you can well, they thought that was important. They thought that that's got to be in the book. If we're going to long for God, if we're going to be thankful to him, if we're going to bring our most desperate cries of longing to him, if we're going to bring our intercession for him, if we're going to bring our sorrows and our, our struggles to him, then we've also got to bring this unity into our life together. They understood that this matters, that this is as important as all the other psalms that went before. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live together in unity, where there's no division between them, and one isn't set off against another. No one is above or underneath someone else. But each finds their place, and, and each is happy to be in that place and to help other people to find their place. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. And the psalmist goes on, he describes three blessings, three blessings that kind of fall down from, from heaven. And um, first of all, he says it's like 
precious oil poured on the head. And what the psalmist is imagining is um, when a king was anointed or when their priest, the high priest was anointed for the year um, that he was going to serve for, um, they would take the anointing oil and they would pour it on the head. And I guess full of oil and I... Um, you know, today when we crown a king or a prince, we just say a little bit and we just anoint them on the head. But they used to just get this horn of oil and just pour it over them and it would run down. But it was a symbol of God is going to bless us again. God has given us a priest once again for this coming year. God has given us a king. God has given us um, a gift it was a blessing coming down from heaven. And this, this anointing literally ran down on the collar of Aaron's robe. Aaron, the great symbol, of, symbolized the kind of the line of priesthood um, because he was the best known, perhaps the first in a long line of priests of which you and I are now also heirs of, of course. All priests now in uh, the will of God. Um, but Aaron, he's the kind of the archetypal priest. And so the psalmist imagines this anointing oil um, running down um, onto Aaron's beard, onto the collar of his robe. Um, and, and basically, it's the, it's the, the priestly sign. Um, and uh, what, what does that mean? It, it's a symbol of holiness, but it's a symbol of priestliness, that ability to stand in the gap between humankind and God. And the priest intercedes from the people and God. And God hears the priest on behalf of the people and he bestows blessing. As the priest bestows it, he bestows it on the people and it comes from God. <laughs> people often say to me as an ordained vicar, they say, oh, would you, would you bless me, Timmy? Just bless me. I say, well, I, I could, but you know what? I don't think my blessing is going to do very much, really. Um, it, it's really God's blessing that you need, but I'd be happy to pray God's blessing over you. Um, it, it's not us blessing you. We're just pronouncing the blessing that God is blessing you with. Does that make sense? We pronounce it because it's God who's blessing. We can only do what God does. We have no power to bestow blessing. I can only pronounce what God is doing. And I Sunday because I know that God is speaking it over you. I just give voice to it so that you can hear it. So the, the, the priestly blessing, this is a, this is a, and God has now called all of us to be priests. And so this, this blessing, this first blessing that comes down is the blessing of priestliness. It means that God has given you and I the ability to stand before God and to stand before people and declare to others what God is doing in their lives and wants to do in their lives. Every one of us now shares in that ministry. It's the great blessing that comes down. There's only one thing that really kind of gets in the way of that blessing from really going to work. And apparently that's disunity. Disunity hinders the blessing of God. It hinders that priestly work of the church. Why? Because God is one, and, and, and if we're going to reflect God in the world, then, you know, I mean, people say, how can you love God? You don't even love the people, each other. Jesus says, I pray that they may be one, may be one that the world may believe. And so this is priestly um, anointing that can be hindered through disunity. 
And the, the second blessing he goes on to describe, it is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. Now, Mount, Mount Hermon is the highest mountain in Jerusalem, and it's quite famous for its heavy dew. Most mornings there'll be a heavy dew on the, the mountain, and the psalmist knows this and recalls this well-known um, sort of I guess, topological feature, whatever you call it, um, about the dew of Hermon. Um, and the thing about the, the dew of Hermon is that it gives life. The water brings life to a parched land. And this is the blessing that comes down from heaven, the second blessing. It, it's... It's the water, if you like, of, of refreshing that God brings on his people. God is wanting to bring times of refreshing to his people because the journey gets the dews of Hermon to fall every morning so that you may be refreshed every morning as that blessing comes down from heaven. And that is what God is doing. There's only one thing that really gets in the way of that happening. And that's disunity. All together in unity. For there, it is like the dew. Then it will be like the dew falling on Mount Hermon. And the third blessing that comes down is life forevermore. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Not just eternal life, but but to be fully alive. Was it Irenaeus who said the glory of God is a human being fully alive? Alive to God's creation, alive and alert to all that God is and all that he's doing among us. You know, I've, I love that, a human being fully alive. We get caught up, don't we, with eternal life that kind of goes on forever. But actually... Um, the kind of life that the scriptures are talking about here, yeah, it may include going on forever, but what's the point if it's not a fully alive kind of life? I mean, cabbages might live forever, but I mean, it's not the kind of life I want forever, frankly. The kind of life we want is the life that the psalmist described. And you can have blessings in your life. You can have blessings praying on your own. You can have blessings being a Christian, whether you ever go to a church ever again or not. But there are some blessings that you can only have when you're joined in unity to a Christian community. Because God has reserved some blessings, the blessings of unity, and you can't have them on your own. You can only have them in community. You have lots of blessings at home, lots of blessings out there, but there are one or two that you can only have. Here, the psalmist is saying that that matters because some of the richest blessings that will sustain you for out there are only found in the Christian community. And I recognize that that meets in lots of different forms. It doesn't necessarily represent coming to church every Sunday and religiously doing our duty, but it means being part of a community and knowing myself to be part of a body. And I, I don't need to probably labor that here. Because you're here. <laughs> but I understand that, that some people feel, well, do we really need the church as we've inherited it these days? Do we need services? Do we need these kinds of meetings? Isn't it more important that we love Jesus and try to serve him in our lives? 
Um, and the answer is yes, of course, of course it is. Church is never, is never less than that, but, it, but it's more than that. Absolute need for the community to demonstrate this together because there's a blessing that God wants to release to the world. And there's only one thing that really gets in the way of him doing that. And that's disunity. God wants to bring life to our friends, our neighbors, and to our town. But disunity can get in the way of that. So you get these incredible psalms, the psalms of thanksgiving, the psalms of longing, the psalms of desperation, the psalms um, uh, that just express um, our, our desire that God put the world right. And then you get this psalm, the psalm of unity. And there have been times in, in my life as a, as a Christian leader when I have seen the benefits and the blessings of unity and I've seen the consequences of disunity. And some of you have known and been part of churches that have um, come to an end. Sometimes in God's providence, but sometimes because relationally um, and in, in terms of unity, it just simply began to disintegrate. And you know how painful that is. And I've seen the blessing of unity. I've seen a church community um, make a decision to, and I don't think it's any, any coincidence that that same season saw our biggest ever Alpha course in London and the most people turning to Christ because there's a blessing that's released when we dwell together in unity. Before, long before I was ordained, 35 years ago, I was working in St. Helens um, in Merseyside and um, we were part of a team, I was part of a team leading Mission St. Helens. It was coming off the back of the Billy Graham Crusades in the 1980s, 1984, 85, I think. He was doing London, Harrogate, he did Liverpool. So uh, we were all, our church was all, in, we were in the choir singing on the, in the cop on the Liverpool uh, Stadium. Um, and got to meet Cliff Barrows for an evening, which was great fun. The worship director for uh, Billy Graham's uh, organisation. Um, and it was, it was great fun. And off the back of that, we then had in our own little t- town, an industrial northern town, a mission. And uh, over 28 churches came together. And they began to confess the ways that we had spoken against each other. Conservatives and charismatics came together. Baptists and Pentecostals came together. We discovered that we knew half the same people, didn't we? From the, from the Pentecostal church, there was the Elam church there. and I was in, in the Anglican church, but I was great friends. I used to go in the evening to the Pentecostal church because it was a bit more lively. And I just got to see the churches together in unity, and we had the most incredible mission you've ever seen. 1,500 people came to Christ in three weeks. We had Eric Dell, the great evangelist at the time, was preaching. I saw the blessing of unity and how a whole town say to you that I long for that. And one of the things that, that I feel I'm here for, and I feel Christchurch is here for, yeah. is for the town. I don't think it's about us. I don't think it's about, you know, Christchurch, I love, I love its name. Don't you? I love this. Christchurch. It's not, it's not your church. It's not my church. It's Christchurch. It's a church for everyone. I mean, how many of you here were, were brought up in the Church of England? Yeah, less than half. I love that. 
I love that. I'm really happy to be in the Anglican. God's planted me in it. Um, and here we are. We're in one. But you know what? I love it. It's Christ's church. And in this town, I think we're called to be a beacon of unity. We've got people who come from all kinds of backgrounds. Some of them from challenging church backgrounds. And I'd love to say to you that our church will be a better church than some of the ones that you've maybe encountered before. I'd love to believe we can be, but I know that we get things wrong sometimes. But we must never strive to be in unity with other churches in the town. I say to people who come to our church, maybe they're just visiting, I say, well, you know, there's loads of great churches in Tunbridge Wells, and we're friends with all of them. So pick whichever one you like, because it doesn't have to be here, because we're all in this together. And we're committed at Christ Church to wanting to play our part in the ministry that God wants for Tunbridge Wells because there's a blessing he wants to bring on this town and it ain't going to happen when we dwell together in unity. I've seen this myself and I know this is what God wants to do. 5,000 people who live in Tunbridge Wells town. 168,000 people live in the rural borough of Tunbridge Wells. That's a huge number of people who look to this town for, um, for, for facilities, for uh, local government, um, different services that they, they need to access. 168,000 people look to this town. And we want to be that beacon, don't we, of, of, of light and of life. We want to be the, the blessing, the, the dew coming down. On, we want to be the oil falling on the robe. Uh, we, want to, we want to be that for, for people who are coming into our town desperately in need of it. But the more we can be in unity, not only with one another here in this church, but also with our friends in other churches, I think the greater the blessing. I've said this before. No good thing does God withhold to those who walk his way. Psalm 84, 17 tells us that. But, but what? there's something about the way that we position ourselves. If a bucket is upturned, you can ask God to pour blessing upon it, and God will. But you won't kind of get any of it because you're not positioned. Right? If you turn the bucket upside down and the right way up, and then you ask God's blessing to fall, now it's going to fill you. It's not that God withholds, it's that we don't always come in the right way. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So if I'm positioned in pride, wanting to do my thing, and I'm going to run God's church because I know how to do this, because I've been doing it for long enough and I should know by now, you know, that's going to resist God's because, well, I bless you, Tim, but you haven't got much capacity in you to receive it. But if you could come with humility and say, God, I need you more than anything else in the world, and God kind of likes that. You kind of, that kind of, you get filled. The hungry, he fills with good things, but the self-satisfied, he sends away empty because there's nothing he's got to give them. He could pour it upon them, but it wouldn't be any good to them because they think they've got it already. So it's about positioning our hearts. And it's not pretending, it's just recognizing what we're really like. It's not saying, oh Lord, I'm coming in humility, I'm choosing to be humble. How many choosing to be humble? Because actually that's what I am. That's what I really am. I'm not pretending miserable and wretched. You know, when John Newton wrote um, Man on Himself, he wasn't sort of saying, oh, you're useless, wretched old me. He's simply benchmarking himself. He's saying, compared to God, I'm a wretch. Compared to him, I'm this. We position ourselves, not, not pretending, not in order that we can get something from God, because it's who we really are, poor and desperate, and in need, 
and struggling to be in unity with friends and family and maybe people in our church. That's the reality. And I just need to position myself and say, Lord, this is the way I am and I desperately need you to help me. And as far as I know, that's the best way to get the blessing because God always comes. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He loves the contrite. He, he loves those who know that they can't do it on their own. He gives, um, he, he gives strength to those who mourn. You just have to be honest about where you're at, and that's when you, you get the blessing. But those who say, no, 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 there's no grief in my life. I'm, I'm fine. I'm, I'm, I can sort it all. You don't really get the blessing. Not because God withholds it, but because you're not coming in honesty and, and truth. And with all of us learning how to do this better, aren't we? But today it's about unity. About unity. The Spirit brings unity. Now I think it's interesting that all the images that um, we have here, those three images of the oil, the water, uh, and life, they're all images of the Holy Spirit. Aren't they? The water of the Holy Spirit, the oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And actually life itself, the Spirit gives life. It's the Holy Spirit that the psalmist is longing for in this psalm. And we live in the fulfillment of it. One of the main effects of the coming of the Holy Spirit was unity. In Acts chapter 2, um, the Spirit falls, and uh, they, they, uh, all the disciples are filled with the Spirit. They are speaking in other tongues. And you remember how it goes? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Judea, and a whole bunch of other people whose names you can barely pronounce, Phrygia. Um, and presumably, among the 3,000 converts on that first day were people from every one of those nations that were represented in Jerusalem at that time. The very, the very first day of the coming of the Spirit there was brought in to the new founded church people from probably 20 different nations on the first day for thousands of years, on day one of the Spirit's coming. Instantly there are 20 nations. Within, within a matter of months there were 50 nations and then 100 nations until now there's not a nation in the world that doesn't have a church in it. The Spirit brings unity. We see that in the book of Acts. And then if you read at the end of Acts, uh, chapter 2, all heard the message in their own language because as the Spirit came, um, it, it brought a unity of, of focus on Jesus. They all heard the good news of Jesus in their own language. The Spirit brought unity. Uh, and Luke ends chapter 2 by saying that this unity was then reflected in how they lived together. All the believers were together. They had everything in common and they gave to each other as they had in need. It was a demonstration of their unity. If, if you were in need, well, what, can I help you? What have I got that could help you? That's a practical demonstration of the unity that the Spirit brings. Um, says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That means not just sharing all things, it means forgiving and foregoing and forbearing with one another. I've said before in this church, but you know, it takes two to take offense, one to give it and one to take it. So just stop taking it. Just don't take offense. Just I'm not taking that. I don't know why they said that, but I'm not taking it. Because then you don't have to give it back, do you? Then you don't have to kind of like repay, you don't have to tolerate this. 
And this psalm reminds us of that. So listen, why? Okay, this unity, sharing of possessions, sharing all good things, living in forgiveness and peace with one another, but also living in peace with uh, other churches. Not allowing ourselves to speak ill of people whose doctrinal position we might personally not go along with. Now, I know this is difficult because there has to be differences sometimes in our, in our churches um, because we, we just hold different convictions and different things that matter more importantly to some than to others. And I don't think God is looking for uniformity, but he's looking for unity that Tunbridge Wells might believe. That's the prayer that Jesus is praying tonight. So, finally... All well and good, but why would he want to sing it? I mean, these psalms are songs, right? I mean, the psalmist isn't really talking about the doctrine. I've put all that into it because we've read the New Testament, so we know how it works. But the psalmist just says, it's three verses. Behold how good and pleasant it is, and brethren, sing that. What would be the point of singing it? Well, I... I was going to say, I've got three things, but maybe that's another one, Alex, thank you. But the first thing is, I think, so I've got three things. It, because we, sing, we, we sing this psalm, and we sing psalms like this because it arrests us, it moves us, and it positions us. So it arrests us. Um, when we sing, behold, a good, it, it makes us think, oh, oh, yeah. It isn't just about thanksgiving. It's not just about interceding. It's, not just, it's actually about unity. It just arrests us. It makes us realize this is important. It's what Jesus prayed for. That's why we would sing something like this. So just the act of singing it arrests us. It brings us to attention. This matters. That's what the psalmist is doing. He's not giving you an exposition of how to live in unity. He's not telling you uh, you do it like this. He's just sort of saying, unity matters, people. Heads up. Heads up. Do you get this? It matters. That's his goal, really. It matters, doesn't it? Secondly, um, it moves us. It moves us to intercede for it. The fact that I've sung it makes me think, I need, I need to pray for that. I need to pray for our town. I need to pray for all the churches in our town. It, it moves me to pray. It moves me to think, well, if, that, if that's where the blessing falls, then I need to pray. Third reason for singing it is that by singing, we position ourselves. So often when we sing our, our praises to God, we are positioning our hearts. I was thought, but when I sing my praises to God, I begin to direct my heart towards the Lord. And then I realize that the praise that I have in my heart that belongs to him is actually on my lips. And I, it, 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 it's realigning my inner heart with God and his truth. I was to say it really, but it's like just... I love that. It's the, it's the word of the moment, isn't it? Alignment. Um, I hear a lot of prophetic voices talking about coming into alignment with God. And I, I'm not even sure I quite know what it means. I need to do a bit of study. All I know is I like it. I think that, I think that is God. Um, and I need to know better what that means. I could preach on that next time. You could do that. Um, <laughs> you'd be good at that. Um, alignment. Positioning is another word for alignment. I think when we sing... Um, we're, we're positioning our, our hearts by expressing with our voices. It's, it's kind of, it arrests us, it's moving us, and it, it's aligning us with God's truth. That's why you would sing this. That's why Christians have sung this and versions of it for thousands of years. Because it arrests us. Yes, this matters. It moves us to pray for unity 
among us, in our families, and in our town. And it positions us. It makes us ready to do. It's hard to sing, behold how good and pleasant, and then to go out. It's harder to do it when we have positioned ourselves in this way. And I think that's the intention of the psalmist. But of course, also, simply the act of singing together is a demonstration of unity. We might not all agree on what we like, what clothes we like to wear, what programs we like to watch on TV, what books we like to read. Um, we can't always agree on what movies we want to see. What was that one? The Panda? Kung Fu Panda. I mean, Gordon was talking about that last week. I mean, and that, you, and apparently people say it's fantastic, but I mean, what? Kung Fu Panda. It's like, what is that? Anyway, we don't all agree on that. We may not all agree on, but we all agree on this. When we sing, Lord, you are worthy, Lord, you are holy, we all agree on that. So when we sing together, that act of uniting our voices is an act of unity in itself and releases the blessing of God, which is the goal of it all. That every Sunday we meet together, every life group that meets during the week, when we gather together, I pray it would be like the dew falling on Mount Hermon, like the oil falling on the robe, like the life that God bestows forever. And I'm praying for, for what God is wanting to do in our town. I'm praying that this dew will fall on the town. I want to see the oil fall on the town. I want to see more of those things where people come and stand outside our church saying, I need to talk to someone because I'm feeling that I need to put something right. I need, I need this, this Jesus. Something's arrested me. And it's because of the unity that is among the churches. Um, 